All right, enough of that. How many of you have ever eaten at a restaurant? I'm guessing all of us. Has anybody never eaten at a restaurant? It could be fast food or sit down. Actually, which do you prefer? Who, who would rather go to a sit down restaurant? And who would rather go to a fast food restaurant? Okay, so a handful of us. There's, I kind of am twisted because I like going to a sit down restaurant where somebody will bring me my food and, and I don't have to do anything. But then I'm a heavy drinker. So I like to get the refills. So to go to a fast food place, I used to drink a lot of Coke, but there was so much sugar in it. So now I'm a tea drinker. So I like to go to McDonald's and I'll go sit there and I'll eat, I'll drink tea after tea after tea. And I like, because the waitresses are never, or the waiters are never, you know, they'll come and check on you once in a while, but not often enough to make sure my glass is always full. I did many years ago. I had a waitress who I would come, I would go to, I love Chili's ribs. So every once in a while I'd go to Chili's and this one waitress knew me, and she would always come with two mugs of Coke for me. And so there was never an empty. If one was empty, she'd refill that one. And so there was always a glass of Coke there, and I married her. So, <laughs> so yeah, we, we do like the sit-down places, but uh, now with our four voracious kids, and if we get a chance to go out these days, it's typically a fast food place that has, you know, that either has like a dollar menu or the coupons that we can use because we, we can't afford to feed everybody at a sit-down restaurant. But, um, so here's the pertinent question with that in mind. How many of you have ever gotten a wrong order? Who's ever been given food that that's not what I ordered, that something wasn't? Yeah, so a handful of us and... and you, it's even worse if you go through the drive-thru and then you get where, to wherever you're going, you're ready to eat and you realize you didn't get something or you got the wrong thing and you're like, that's not what I ordered. And at, I mean, if you're in a sit-down place, at least you can send it back and say, that's not what I want, you know, can, or my steak's not cooked the right way or whatever. And, and uh, the, the one place that has that figured out is Subway because you watch them as they go step by step. So you go to Subway and you tell them, this is why I want that and that and that and so you can ch- check them before they actually try to put something wrong. But uh, we've all had times, I'm sure, not just in restaurants where you eat, but uh, in our lives when we didn't get what we were expecting. That's not what I wanted. That's not what I was hoping for, right? We've all had those kind of experiences where we were something in life just wasn't what we were planning on. Um, maybe, you know, when you have an accident, you're, just, you're going on a trip to go visit your family, that's what happened to Jenna. She was visiting with, with uh, her aunt and, and grandma, and they got rear-ended. And so now our van has a little dent in it. Everybody's okay, but uh, you know those things happen. You were planning on just going on a trip somewhere, and your car is not working. Or maybe you went on vacation and got food poisoning. Has that ever happened to anybody? You, you know, maybe go on a trip to someplace you've never been before, and you eat something and doesn't agree with you, or... You had a breakdown along the way. You got a flat tire or the engine stops working. If you're traveling across the country and your car breaks down, that's never very fun. All you want to do is enjoy your vacation and here's something that's not what I wanted. Or you went to the doctor just to have a checkup and he gives you bad news. Look, I'm afraid to tell you that fill in the blank. That's happened to quite a few of us. You were just planning on going to bed at night, and then you hear a drip, drip, dripping coming from the sink, or you know, rainstorms coming, you got a leak in your basement or from your roof. We've all had this kind of stuff happen in our lives. The power outage when you just wanted to watch the game, <laughs> right? 
getting laid off from work when you're expecting to be continuing at that job for many years to come. And so we've, we can all probably think of times when what we were planning on or hoping for is not what we ended up with. And wouldn't it be nice if we could take life's disappointments and send them back? Sorry, that's not what I ordered. Can you take this back and bring back the, what I was hoping for? Just like we could with an undercooked steak. Of course, there are, there are times when something turns out better than we expected too. You know, sometimes we get unexpected bad news, but there sometimes we get unexpected good news. Maybe you got home and you opened up your bag and there was an extra burger in there that you weren't hoping for or that you weren't expecting. And, and, or somebody, you got stuck in a bind, maybe you were broke down on the side of the road and somebody stopped to help you and they had just the right tool. Or, or you know, somebody showed up with the, the money that you needed to pay off a bill. You know, you never know when something good is going to... And every once in a while, there was one time I was complaining to Jenna about how there's no such thing as a free lunch. And I forgot how we got into the conversation. I think there was a coupon she had or something, and I said, that's just the way to get you into the building so you can spend money that you weren't going to spend to start with. So all the sales and deals that companies offer, they're just ways to get more money out of you. And I said, there's no such thing as a free lunch. And then we stopped at a gas station. We were on our way somewhere, and I, we got gas, and I was going to get a drink, and I went in and put the drink on the counter, and the guy said, don't worry about it. So I got a free drink <laughs> right after so I had to go out and tell Jenna, well, I guess there is once in a while. So, <laughs> so today we're going to look at uh, somebody in the Bible who was probably surprised by what he was given, not expecting what he received, and and it's a great story, and I'm sure you've probably heard it before. It's from our scripture today. After getting to, into a boat, because remember last week we were at, at the, with the Gedereans across the, the Lake Galilee, and the, they said, please, after he cast the demons out of the, uh, out of the men, and they went into the pigs and drowned all the pigs, and the people said, please go away. So he got back into the boat and crossed to the other side, it says in Matthew 9, and he came to his own town. And just then some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a stretcher. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, have courage, son, your sins are forgiven. And, of course, it's Matthew is, is giving us a very condensed version of this story. And he just gives us the basic details. And you might remember the same story from the Gospel of Mark, because Mark tells the same story, and he adds a few, he puts in a few more details that Matthew leaves out. And Mark lets us know that this all happened because Jesus was teaching. And, of course, there are crowds everywhere Jesus went. People flocked around to hear what he was teaching. And so there's this crowd of people that want to hear him. But this time, instead of being on the side of a hill, he's in a house. And it's a very crowded house because everybody's jamming in to hear what people's... And when you think a house in, like in Jesus' neighborhood, don't think like of our homes where we, you have a living room and a family room and a kitchen and bedrooms... There, it was like a one room, maybe two rooms. You know, a typical house was just a, a place with walls and an open space, and you used it for everything. You, you know, it was at night, you'd have a mat that you would unroll, and you'd sleep on the mat, and then you'd roll it back up and put it in the corner, and then it was your living room. And you had a, maybe a cook stove inside, and then it was your kitchen also. So it was like a one room apartment, and they weren't very big. So, uh, you know, at most, you might be able to cram two dozen, four dozen people in a really big house, you know, all standing, you know, or sitting, you know, with no room to, to move around. So people were packed inside this house. And there was, you know, shoving around to get a little space. 
And people who couldn't fit in the house were probably crowded around the door. If they had windows, I'm sure there were people trying to peer in the windows and listen because they, they wouldn't have glass. Glass was a, an extremely expensive thing, so only the fanciest house would have had some kind of glass. So you'd have an open window, and people, and people were just trying to jam in there to hear what Jesus was saying in this, in this house. And hospitality in that region and in that time is, is a very important social norm for them. And so, you don't, you know, if somebody comes over, you welcome them. In, in fact, in most of the Middle East, even today, it's still pretty normal to welcome people, even strangers, into your home and to give them to share your food with them. So, hospitality to them is like politeness to us. Here, we, we don't often let strangers into our house to eat at our tables, but at least we turn them down politely. And so we're polite to people. We're, we try to, to, you know, we're more concerned about saying please and thank you and excuse me and et cetera and those kinds of things. But they are, they were more concerned with sharing what they have. That was kind of the, the society's rules. If somebody comes over, you welcome them in and you share what you have with them. And if you don't show welcome and hospitality, you're just a jerk. So like if you're impolite to somebody here, well, everybody knows you're a jerk. If you don't welcome a, a stranger who comes over, well, in, in that culture, you're a jerk. So, so there, the host, whoever owned the home, and some people think it might have been Peter's home. We don't, the Bible doesn't tell us. Some people think because Jesus knew Peter and he'd been to his house before and helped his mom get well. Remember when he went over and his mom was sick? So some people guess maybe it was Peter's house because that's where you know, it would have been lived close to Jesus. Anyway, they're at a house and... The host, whoever owns the home, is trying to be welcoming and accommodating to this crowd of people who's jamming into his house and doing his best to, to accommodate them all. And, and it's jam-packed. And meanwhile, while this is going on and Jesus is sitting amongst them teaching and everybody's trying to be quiet and listen, and outside there are some men who are climbing up onto the roof. And in 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 that region, it was kind of typical to have a, a little stairway that would go up to your roof, and it was a flat roof, and that's where you would go if you wanted to hang out, you know, have some fresh air, or you could lay out your, your clothes to dry, or if you had fruits, you know, dry your fruit in the sun. So the roof was a commonly used area, so it wasn't uncommon for, for you to have access to a roof. So there might have been a ladder or steps to get up there um, and to hang out. So while everybody is jam-packed inside, there's some people climbing up onto the outside of the house, onto the roof, carrying a friend of theirs on a mat. And usually the, the roofs were, you might have some, some load-supporting beams, and then across those beams you'd spread branches. And then on the branches, you'd pack with mud, and that would dry in the sun, so you'd have a hard, dried mud roof. And so these people were digging through that mud and pulling away the, the sticks and branches to dig a hole through the roof. Now you can imagine what it's like for the people inside sitting around listening to Jesus all crowded in there. And at first you just hear some scratching and they're wondering what's going on. And all of a sudden some sunlight's coming through and dirt and mud chunks and sticks are falling down on people. And they're wondering what in the world is going on. And you look up and you see these hands pulling through and dirt's falling down and people are covering their heads and... and now people are upset and, and yelling, what are you doing and what's going on? And, he, and somebody starts getting lowered through the hole. And I don't know if some friends you know, hop down and they pass him down, but they're, they're dropping this guy onto a crowd of people 
who are now kind of forced, they probably made a little room where the dirt was falling down, but now they're kind of forced to either hold this guy in their laps because they're so crowded. And turns out, you know, this guy, there's a paralyzed guy on a mat who's been lowered down through the roof. And so these guys who have done this thing, who have cl- who've gone through the trouble to climb up on a roof and carry their paralyzed friend and dig a hole through somebody else's house and destroy his roof and lower their friend down, they wouldn't do this unless they had some serious belief that Jesus could do something for their friend. I mean, obviously they were going there because of Jesus, like everybody else was. And they're bringing their paralyzed friend because they believe, they've either heard the stories or they've seen some of the evidence of Jesus healing people, that He can do something for their friend. So they are doing this. They're going through all this this trouble and, and property damage to help their friend because they believe that Jesus can do something. Or at least I assume or, or I hope that they offered to repair the roof after all this, but they're willing to pay. They're willing to go through this trouble. And like the Bible says, you can't have real faith without works. So you see the faith of these friends in action, in doing whatever it takes to get their friend to Jesus. And we don't care if people hate us, if they're yelling at us, if we make a big mess, if we have to destroy somebody's roof, we're going to do what it takes to get our friend to Jesus. So Jesus, the Bible says, sees their faith. He sees what they're doing. And, and He says what to them? To the man. He's got the guys laying on everybody's laps. They're covered with dirt and crud. And Jesus, what does Jesus say to the guy? Your sins are forgiven. Wait a minute, Jesus. I was, we've gone through all this trouble. My friends had a heck of a time carrying me here and getting me up on the roof and dropping me down through this hole. I was kind of hoping that you might be helping or help me with my legs. You know, I, you might not have noticed, but I can't move. I, my body is paralyzed, and th- that's why my friends had to carry me here and drop me. You saw I couldn't move as they're dropping me down through the hole. Not that I don't appreciate the forgiveness and all, but that doesn't much help with being able to walk. You know? So I'm, obviously they're going there because they want Jesus to heal his legs. They want, or what, you may, I don't know if he was dead from here down or maybe his, all four of his limbs. I don't know. But he's paralyzed and he can't walk. And Jesus says, hey, your sins are forgiven. <laughs> That's not what I ordered, Jesus. And, and it's not like having your sins forgiven is a bad thing. That's great. And after all, as a paralyzed person, it's not like he was able to take a lamb and walk into the temple and, and you know, go through the, the process of, of atonement so that he could have his sins forgiven. So that's, that's good. But he's probably just as shocked as everybody else to hear Jesus tell him his sins are forgiven. I mean, for us to hear some, Jesus say to somebody, your sins are forgiven, that's common to us. Of course Jesus is forgiven. We know who Jesus is. But everybody in that room, this crowd of people, they all know, wait a second, only God can forgive sins. In fact, that was the response from the law experts, the, the lawyers, the teachers. They said in verse 3, some of the law, experts of the law said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. He can't forgive sins. Who does he think he is? Only God can do that. Meanwhile, this poor guy is laying on the floor. We don't know his name. We'll call him Matt. And Matt and his friends... <laughs> are probably not sure what to think either. That, wait a second, he's just for, forgiven his sins. Can he do that? That's, I mean, 
They, they did, that's not what they came for. That's, that's cool and all, but we came here so that he could be healed. I mean, do you think that the friends carried Matt all the way just telling him, just wait till we get to see Jesus and you're in front of him? He's totally going to forgive all your sins. They were so excited. No, they weren't talking about forgiving his sins. They, they were looking forward to a miracle healing. They wanted to see Matt walk again. And they had surely heard Jesus that you know he had been that he had been healing people. They they had to have heard the stories or else they saw it. Otherwise they, they wouldn't have known who he was. But they heard something about Jesus. And so they were all hoping to see Matt walk again. Especially Matt, whose legs were dead. And but why did Matt need what what did he need more? If you think about it, did he need to have his legs healed or his sins forgiven? Which was more important? Yeah, his sins forgiven. That when it comes to between the, the options of, of physical healing or spiritual healing, I mean, you can get into heaven with a broken body. As a matter of fact, Jesus says, you know, if your eye is causing you to sin, what should you do? Gouge it out and throw it away. If your hand is causing you to sin, cut it off and get rid of it because it's better to go into heaven with a broken body than to be cast into hell with all your parts, right? So obviously, having your, your, your heart cleansed is much more important than having your body fixed. Of course, your, your eye and your hand doesn't cause you to sin. What causes you to sin? Your heart. And that's what Jesus is getting to the point. It is way more important to fix what's inside here than, than your body. So, his legs weren't quite... Jesus' primary concern is this man's eternal soul. I mean, obviously, he noticed his legs. He knows what's wrong with this guy. But he, he looks beyond that to what's more important, and that's the condition of his heart. And his priority is his sins. And so he tells him, your sins are forgiven. And in the Bible, it's, you, you'd actually, you don't really separate physical and spiritual. In the biblical kind of language, it's not like you look at, at your body as different from your, your spirit. Like when the Bible talks about soul, it's an all-encompassing thing. We, we still kind of use that language a little. Like if you talk about people on a ship or on a plane, they count souls, right? They say we've got so many souls on board. And that's the way the Bible looked at it. You don't separate body and spirit. You look at it as a, as a package deal. And so when the Bible talks about the physical and the spiritual, they're really kind of inseparable. So sin and guilt will tear a person up inside. And, and it has physical impact so to speak. And, and we see that sentiment described throughout Psalms. That, that when somebody is, is, you know, their heart is dealing with issues that, that affects their body and affects how they live and how they act and that kind of stuff. And actually, in, even in the modern world, scientific research has shown how much our mental health can impact our physical well-being. That you can't really separate mind and body. They're, they're, they work together in a package. And if you're suffering in your mind, it affects your body. That stress, whether it's good stress or bad stress, it has an impact on your, on your heart and on your lungs and on your skin and, and your, your, how your internal organs work your, and your gut bacteria. It's amazing how much of an effect the, the physical and the mental and everything in you are all tied together. And, and it's no different with our spiritual well-being, which is basically the, the quality or lack of a relationship with the Lord. That's where your spiritual health comes from. If you have a relationship with God, then you're, 
you're much more spiritually healthy than if you don't have a relationship with God, which means you're dead in your sins. And, and so our spiritual health is completely integrated and in, in, intertwined with our physical and our mental well-being. It's all kind of a package deal. And if you're, physically, if you're spiritually healthy, it's going to impact how you live and how you feel. I am totally convinced after reading all sorts of statistics that the pressure to push Jesus out of our society and to get Jesus and Christianity out of our schools and out of our government and out of our public sphere as a, as a society, that that is why depression and suicide have risen, have skyrocketed. And are, I, I am convinced of that. That if that our, our goal as a society to get rid of Jesus is impacting us physically and mentally, and it's hurting us as a culture. And, and, but the Bible doesn't ever come out and say that, that sin or a lack of faith produces physical ailments in people. There are plenty of healthy sinners and sick saints. So it's not like, you know, just because you're sick means that you're evil. Uh, but there are, and actually there are examples, kind of the, a mixed bag of examples in the Bible, like you might remember the story of, of Miriam when Moses and the Israelites are coming out of the desert and Miriam actually speaks against Moses in one little section. And so God strikes her with leprosy, which is interesting that, that he's, you know, she's against Moses and talking down to him because of he's married you know, outside of the, the Jewish family. And, and so God gives her leprosy. And then she kind of recants and says, I'm sorry, you know, I, I take it back. And so God heals her, which is a, a strange story that because of her sin, God makes her sick. But then there's another guy in the Bible who gets struck with all sorts of ailments and, and, and his life is destroyed, but he's perfectly innocent. And you might remember the story of Job. that He didn't do anything wrong, and yet God allowed his his, his whole life to be torn apart and his body to be wrecked with, with boils and sores. And, and so there's an example of somebody who is, you know, has a physical ailment because of sin and somebody who has a physical ailment not because of sin. And then also the, Jesus, the, he heals a guy who was born with blindness. He had grown up totally blind, never had seen anything, and he heals the man. He, he makes it so he can see again. And people ask him, before he does it, he says, they say, Jesus, why was this guy born blind? Because of his own sins or because of his parents' sins? So it's their assumption, and this is the way that the kind of the Jewish culture in his day thought, if you are sick, like if you have a, a, a physical curse, you're blind, you have leprosy, or you have something, it's because of sin in your life or, or maybe in your parents' life, but somewhere you did something wrong and that's why you're going through this physical problem. You deserve it because you must have done something wrong. And people think that way today. There's a lot of people, you know, you, you must be getting what you deserve sort of thing. And Jesus says, no, it's, it has nothing to do with his sin. It has nothing to do with his parents' sin. Actually, what does Jesus say? He is blind so that God can be glorified, which is a really weird thing to think. But, that, you know, he spent this, his whole life blind so that God could be glorified. And then Jesus heals him and says, this is so that I could show you who God is and what he can do and how wonderful he is. So, the, so basically... We should not assume that somebody's physical problems are a direct result of, of their own sin. 
And, and it's true that we would, you know, if you think in the big picture sort of thing, there, if there were no sin in the world ever, there would be no sickness. There would be no death. Like the, the Bible tells us that with sin, death entered into the world. When Adam and Eve decided to do what they shouldn't have done and, and ate the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, that's when sickness and death and thorns and thistles and all that kind of a lot of bad stuff entered the world. So technically, all sickness and all death is the result of sin. But because somebody specifically gets sick or dies, it's not because they committed a sin and, and God cursed them specifically for that sin. So, God, for example, little children get cancer. We live in a world where babies die because of deformities or, or, or physical problems. And these problems, this is, God does not punish innocent little babies. And so these problems, these physical ailments, death itself is, is the enemy, the Bible tells us. That these kind of problems are every bit as troubling to God as they are to us. When somebody gets sick, when somebody's suffering, when somebody is killed, that, that God is troubled in his heart just as much as we are. That we are upset by that stuff and so is God. So, so Jesus looks at this and he's got this, this totally different viewpoint from us. Where like he looked at the blind man and said, this is so that God can be glorified. Jesus looks at, at physical ailments and he sees the, the suffering that we go through as opportunity. That if somebody is suffering, that this is a chance for growth. This is a chance for change, that I can use this. And, and actually, God promises that all things, if you love Jesus, that He will cause all things to work together for the good of those who love Him. So that anything that you might be suffering will never go to waste. He never promises that you'll have a hunky-dory life and you won't ever get sick and you won't ever have money problems or family problems. Or As a matter of fact, He says, follow Me and you will have trouble because the world hates you. In this world... You will have trouble. But I've overcome the world, so as long as you trust me and love me, I will make sure that nothing you ever suffer goes to waste. I will use it all to glorify God. And, and so, even though we might be in a bad situation, God will never, ever let your pain and suffering be pointless if you trust Him. And, but at the same time, this poor guy, the, the Matt who's paralyzed, has grown up in a culture who looks at his, his useless legs, which are probably withered and, and, and you know, muscle has disappeared and, and he can't use them. And they look at him and they think, this is obviously your fault. You did something wrong. You're just getting what you deserve. Or, or your parents maybe. But somewhere along the lines, you, this, you're getting what you, you, you should get because of sin. And that kind of think—I mean, I think that kind of thinking is even easy for us to get caught up in. You know, why doesn't that homeless guy just get a job? He obviously has done something wrong with his life. He's made bad choices, and that's why he's living on the street. We have no idea why somebody is sitting on the street, or why they're they're suffering, or why a, a town gets struck by an earthquake or whatever. We don't know, but it's easy for us to make judgments, and and we can do that if we're not careful. And I, I wouldn't be surprised if the man on the mat even started to believe it himself because that's the culture that he grew up in. I'm sure I deserve this. Somewhere along the line, I, I know the things I've done things, and I've felt that way myself. Like, 
when I've been suffering or going through a troubled time, you know, I think, I mean, I've, I have had plenty of years of rebellion in my life and I've done plenty of wrong things and I'm just getting what I deserve. I, I don't deserve any of God's goodness or blessings. I deserve His wrath and I deserve to suffer. And I've, I mean, if you're depressed, that is so easy of a mindset for you to get into. You know, I, I, I'm not worth it and I don't deserve any help or anything from God, so I'm just getting what I deserve. And I'm sure that, that the guy on the mat had those thoughts. You know, of course God doesn't love me because I've done the wrong things in my life. And of course He's not going to heal me because I, I'm just getting what I deserve. Because that's the culture that He grew up in. And so Jesus starts off the conversation with him with what is absolutely most important. Letting this man know that his paralyzed body is not a punishment from God. That's what he deals with first. He, you are not suffering because God doesn't like you, Matt. If you actually listen to Jesus' words, you can hear it. Because he says, this is the, the Hebrew, or the Greek, he says, child, son. You know, as if you're talking to a little child. Like if you've ever been to the south and you, you know, you're having a problem, they say, oh, child. Like that's what Jesus is saying to him. Child. Like a loving thing as he refers to him. Child, don't be afraid, he says to him. Fear not. Don't be afraid. God doesn't hate you. You are not suffering because God wants you to feel bad. God doesn't want you to walk. That has nothing to do, the lack, your legs not working has nothing to do with how God feels you, well, about you. He is not punishing you with a broken body. He is not punishing you with this physical problem. He cares about you. He has always cared about you. In fact, consider your sins washed away. From this point forward, God says you are forgiven. And your sin has nothing to do with your legs. God loves you, my child. Don't be afraid anymore. Your sins are forgiven. That's what Jesus is saying. And, he's, and that's why it's the most important thing to say first. We pray in this church on a regular basis. And, and Wednesday nights, the whole reason we get together is to pray. And, and I remember we have prayed many, many prayers for physical healing. I think probably most of our concerns on the back of our bulletin are for physical issues. And, and that matters to us. That's an important thing to deal with. Uh, but I don't remember anyone on a Wednesday evening asking if we could pray with them for forgiveness of their sins. Which is kind of weird to think about in context of this. That as much as we pray for people's bodies, I mean, we have prayed as a group for, you know, just thought of people that we care about in our lives who are on our hearts that we said, can we pray for their soul and pray for their salvation? We've done that lots of times. But nobody's ever come and said, hey, can you pray for my sins? Can you pray for for me to get right with God. And I wonder if we need to kind of shift our focus a little more on every time we deal with a physical issue, let's deal with the heart issue too. To think about that in, in together. I mean, uh, of course, our physical health is important. It matters very much. If you're suffering, that's the first thing on your mind. If you smash your thumb, every other thought in the world disappears and all you're thinking about is the pain in your thumb. Right? That's the, so when you're suffering physically, that's, that's like all you can focus on. So that's important, and we, and we ought to pray for that. But 
When Jesus is purposely looking past this man's very obvious physical problem and focusing on the state of his soul for a good reason. And he he looks at the same way at all of us. He wants everybody to see who God is. That's why he was walking around and and demonstrating to live the life that he was because he wants people, as God in the flesh, he wants people to see this is what God is like. This is what God cares about. And he wants everybody to see that. And and he has, God is compassionate. He wants us to know that God is kind, that he cares about our hearts and our minds and our souls every bit as much as he cares about our bodies. That he, if it concerns, if it's a concern on our heart, that it's a concern for God. God wants to help us and make us whole, body and spirit, and that it matters to Him. So His most important message to Matt is, "Your sins are forgiven," and this ruffles a lot of feathers. And Matthew, in his condensed version, is he's telling us that the law experts thought that Jesus was blaspheming. And Mark gives us a little more detail on that too. In, in Mark it says, this is chapter 2 in Mark verse 6, says, now some of the experts in the law were sitting there turning these things over in their minds. Why does this man speak this way? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God? And so these guys, they're the Torah experts. You know, the, the, the think of Genesis and Exodus, Leviticus, that the, the they know the law forwards and backwards. They are the religious, um, the, the authority on religion. If you want to know a question from what the Bible says, these are the guys that you go and talk to. When the Bible says this, what does it mean? And they're the ones who tell you that's what it means. They're the authority. And they're saying to themselves, who does this guy think he is? You can't forgive sins, Jesus. Only God can do that. Only God has the authority to forgive anybody. And you have to follow, you know, even if to, to get God to forgive him, to forgive you, you have to go through all of the regulations in order to make that happen. And in that time, if you committed a sin, what did you have to do to get forgiveness for that sin? You had to go make a sacrifice. There was a whole involved process that's spelled out in the books of the law that this is what you have to do. You, you made a bad choice. You did something you knew you shouldn't have done. You, you maybe stole your neighbor's goat or whatever. I don't know. But you did something wrong. And that sin separates you from God. That's still true today, that your sin separates you from God. When you choose to rebel against God, you're cutting yourself off. And, and we talked about that a few weeks ago, that God is holy. He does not associate with evil. He doesn't want it in His presence. He wants it cast out, separated. And so when you choose to go against God in sin and He gives us the freedom to go our own way, you can choose whether you want to live with God or live apart from God. It's your choice. He gives you the freedom to decide. But the consequence is that we have become cut off from God because of our sin, which means we're cut off from life. We're cut off from wisdom. We're cut off from from love and peace and every other good thing because all that stuff comes from God. That if you cut yourself off from life, then now you're dead in your trespasses. And, and, and so the Jewish ceremonial law painted such an excellent picture of this idea that your sin separates you from, from the community. That if you sin, if you become unclean, you have to go outside of the camp. 
And if you want to be part of the community, if you want to be part of this holy community, because if you want to be, if you want to be with God, you have to be holy because God is holy. And so if you're going to live in His community, you have to be holy too. So if you choose to do something that is not holy, you cut yourself off and you're cast out from the community. And so at this, this camp that he set up, it's a great picture of this idea. You know, this is what happens to us spiritually. We aren't cast out of the neighborhood. But spiritually, you sin and you cut yourself off. You, you, you cast yourself out. And, and so we, we don't have to live by the, the old Jewish you know, the ceremonial code anymore because of what Jesus has done, but it's still a spiritual truth. Without holiness, no one will see God. But God also prescribed a means for His people to find forgiveness and rejoin the community. And that entailed making a sacrifice. So you'd have to take one of your flock and go to the temple and they would, you know, they would drain the, the, kill the animal and drain the blood and, and do the whatever parts they needed to cut and process to burn on the altar and, and sprinkle the blood where it needed to go. And that's how you got forgiveness. And until you went through that process, you were unclean. You were unholy. And so if you wanted to be rejoined with the community, you went through that sacrificial process of atonement so that you could be forgiven. And Jesus just bypasses all of that with Matt. And He declares Him forgiven. So this is definitely a scandal. Like, you can't do that. He hasn't gone through the process. If, if, if some kid from across your backyard was out throwing rocks at your house and smashed one of your windows, you probably wouldn't be very happy about it. So now imagine that the kid's dad comes out of his house and walks across your backyard and, and he looks at his, his son and he says, my son, you're forgiven. Go home. Now how do you feel about your broken window? You have no right to forgive him. You can't do that. Only I can do that. And that's what Jesus has done. You can't do that, Jesus. Only God can forgive sins. You, you, can't, he, you can't do this. It's not your window. It's my window. And, and so, that's how these experts are feeling. It's not your place to forgive this guy. Only God can do that. So what Jesus has done, and everybody in the room knows that. I mean, it's not just the, the religious experts. They know it the best, but everybody understands that idea because they all have gone through this process of the sacrifice. They know what has to happen. And so it's going through all their heads. And, and so Matthew 9, at verse 4, it says, when Jesus perceived their thoughts, then He knew what they were talking about. He said, why do you respond with evil in your heart? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, stand up and walk? So who can say your sins are forgiven? Anybody. Anybody can say your sins are forgiven. Of course, whether it actually has effect is a different story, but anybody can say the words. It's easy to say the words, especially when nobody can actually tell by looking whether or not he's forgiven. Like I could say, hey, your sins are forgiven. You can't actually see a change but if, if, if whether they're forgiven or not. But who can say stand up and walk? Well, again, anybody can say the words, but depending on what happens, you're either going to re be revealed as somebody who has extreme, amazing miracle power or just a total jerk for telling a paralyzed guy to get up and walk. So, which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven, which nobody can really see whether it happens or not, or get up and walk, which the whole crowd in the house can see what kind of effect that's going to have. Obviously, 
it's much more difficult to say your sins are forgiven. And then in verse 6 he says, but so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, stand up, take up your mat, and go home. And he stood up and he went home. Which was just a shock. I mean, here's this paralyzed guy who's been dropped through the roof and sitting in everybody's lap. And Jesus says, get up, pick up your your bedroll, and walk out of here. And he does it. So what does this miracle demonstrate? I mean, Matthew isn't telling us the story to show off Jesus' healing ability. We already know that Jesus he's healed other people. We know he can do that. We've seen story after story. So what is this story about? Well, the answer is in the next verse. In verse 8 it says, When the crowd saw this, they were afraid and honored God who had given such authority to men. And this is the same kind of response that the disciples had when Jesus calmed the storm on the sea. Remember, he he rebuked the wind and the waves, and the disciples said, how can this human being do what only God can do? Everybody was shocked and afraid. What kind of man is this who can tell a paralyzed guy to get up off the ground and walk home? Only God can do that. Who is this guy? So everybody is shocked and they're afraid. So this miracle healing demonstrated that Jesus actually had the authority to do what he said. And so far in this book, Matthew's been revealing Jesus to us in a very smart and creative way, I think. He could have just said, Jesus is the Messiah, he's the Son of God, and so he has all these powers that he can do, and that's who he is. And that would have made for a very short and boring book. Instead, he's been telling us what Jesus said and, and what Jesus did and revealing us so that we can see the evidence with our own eyes or our own reading ability who this Jesus guy really is. He's given plenty of examples of of prophecy that Jesus has fulfilled in his life, and he's shown us how Jesus resisted temptation. and and He could have served himself instead of God, but he stayed faithful. We've seen him show compassion and mercy through reaching out to the poor and and healing people. We've heard his authoritative teaching and the Sermon on the Mount and, and healing people and, and, and learned how we are supposed to live as disciples in the kingdom of God and work together to make the world more and more like God means it to be. And, and he's been powerful in the things that he's done. He's been compassionate and kind. And he's done shocking things that only God can do. He's confront evil and cast out demons. And now... This healing is a demonstration of Jesus' authority, not only to do miracles, but to forgive sins, which only God can do. So Jesus is taking over the role of the temple itself. Jesus, instead of going through this this sacrificial process, Jesus is showing that he is the way for people to be able to come to God. He is the way for people to find forgiveness for their sins and rejoin the community. He is the way, and He is the truth, and He is the life. And the people in this crowded house understand the magnitude of this idea, that what He's done, and they're freaking out. They're scared. And and then what happens? Their fear turns into worship. And, And their idea of authority has been turned upside down on its head. Because before now, the closest they could get to God was standing outside of the temple. Because they couldn't even go in there. They're not priests. You know, the average people 
we can bring our, our lamb, we can bring our sacrifice, but that's as close as we can get. The priests are the ones. They're the authority who can get in there and get close to God. We have no interaction with it. And so the average ordinary person, now the, the presence and the power of God was in the house right next to them. And they're amazed and they're worshiping God because this is amazing. It's mind-blowing. I grew up having a problem with authority. Well, Jenna will tell you I still do, but our, and she says that our kids get that trait from me. And, and I never liked people telling me what I could or couldn't do. I wanted the reason. I wanted an explanation. Why do we have to do this? I don't want to just be told because I said so or because this is the way it's always been. I want to know why are we doing it now? So I rebelled a tad. Big tad. So, so, and I'll bet just about everybody in here has had a negative experience with authority in their lives at some time. If you didn't do it when you were young, then you get to be reminded next month. No, Yeah, next month on the 15th is our annual celebration of disliking authority when we have to pay the government to do things that we don't want them to do. And, and the founding of our great nation was helped along the way by people rebelling against the taxes that they didn't think there was a good reason for. And they threw all that tea in the harbor. says, we're not going to pay the tax. And so we come from a rebellious line. But here comes Jesus yet again, turning our viewpoints of the world upside down. And, and, and as he's so good at doing. And he's not just some man in an ivory tower and a governmental power telling everybody else where to get off. That Jesus is an authority, and in his authority, he approaches those who need him. He comes close, and, and his authority touches the outcast and heals the broken and, and shows kindness and humility to the lost. And, and his authority is demonstrated in humble service. And that kind of authority wins the hearts of people like me. I want to submit to that kind of authority. I want Christ. I want to submit to Jesus because He isn't just trying to make everybody jump through hoops. He wants to give us life. He wants to get, put Himself in, in harm's way to help me. And He wants to give you abundant and eternal life. And He doesn't just tell us what to do. He shows us the way through His own example. He walks through. He says, follow me. This is how you live. Of course, this makes Jesus a real threat to the people who want to hold on to power. The people who are in the ivory tower who don't want to let go of their authority. The people who want to keep everybody else under their own rule because they like having the power and enforcing the traditions and the regulations. It reminds me, and I'll run over time, but it reminds me a little bit of Donald Trump. Whether you like him or not, you have to agree that many of the people in power hate his guts because he upset the apple cart. He's an outsider. And he doesn't follow traditional political ways. He bypassed all of that and he did an end run around the media and the political powerhouses and surprised everybody on election night. And, and he upset the establishment. And there's a lot of people that hate him because of that. And, I, I, and I'm not going to compare Donald Trump to Jesus. But you get what I'm saying. That that's what Jesus is doing. He has upset the authority. Because he's bringing all these crowds of people are following him, and they're saying, "Wait a second! These people have to come to us and go through our process. You cannot do this, Jesus." So Jesus is hated by these people because he's he's stealing there. He's an authority threat, but the people who believe in him love his authority 
Because he's not a standoff priest who you know, is higher than thou. He's come down to our level and has said, you, know, you don't need to go through the hoops. I'm not here for religious tradition. You can go straight to the source and see what God is like in person, face to face. You can know his kindness and compassion one-on-one. He wants that kind of relationship with you. And this paralyzed man is such a wonderful example because he is us. What can you and I do in our sin without Jesus? Nothing. We are paralyzed. In our, we're dead in our trespasses. Our sin separates us from God and there is nothing that we can do to fix it. We are the paralyzed man, unable to move, dead in our sins, helpless and hopeless. And here around us this morning, is a group of friends that hopefully is willing to pick us up and carry us to Jesus when we need it. That's what the church is supposed to be about. That we are called to go out and help those who can't help themselves to get to Jesus so that He can forgive their sins and heal them. He is the way. And this is, I mean, this story is such a great picture. That's what the disciples are called to do. To bring them to the only one who can save them from their sins. He's the way, the truth, and the life. And we all need each other. We need other Christians in our life. That's why church is so important. We need these people in our lives to help us when we're, when we're having problems who can help carry us when we need it. Who are willing to dig through the roof of somebody else's house to do whatever it takes to get us back on our feet again. And that's what the church is. And this is a wonderful story of God's grace. And in His authority, Jesus wants to tell each one of us, child, Don't be afraid. God loves you. Your sins are forgiven. I want to to help you. I want to walk with you. So it's up to you. Do you want to receive His kindness and His compassion towards you? Because it's there. Do you want to walk with God? Or would you rather go your own way and remain separated from His wonderful and awesome presence? So that's our choice this morning. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank You so much that You were willing to go through what You went through in order that we might be saved. That You became that atoning sacrifice for us. So we don't have to deal with a temple and ceremonial laws anymore. That we can come straight to You and ask for Your kindness. And that if we will follow You, if we will choose to say, you know, I'm done with doing things my own way and choose to come to You, that You will... You've already done all the work necessary and that You're willing to forgive us and make us new and give us new lives. So God, we pray for, for the, the spiritual healing that we all need and that, that if there's anybody in here who has not received that yet, that they'd be willing to turn to You and that the rest of us, that we'd be willing to carry one another, to carry each other to You who, need, who, who can help us. So God, be with us and help us to be good friends who will carry other people to You And help us when we need it to turn to our friends and say, hey, will you carry me? And that we would all come to you and find your your wonderful love and compassion and grace. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.